Another day, more secret data. Today, Friday, June 7th. This is The World. You can't have 100% security and also then have 100% privacy and zero inconvenience. We're going to have to make some choices. Uh, as a society. President Obama defends his administration's surveillance of phone and internet data on the eve of talks with China over hacking. Awkward, perhaps, but this expert says the scale of U.S. cybersecurity efforts is well known to other countries. This is not news to really anybody, I'm sure, in the Chinese government or in the Russian government or the Iranian government. Um, It's just a matter of becoming public is a little more embarrassing. We'll explore whether that embarrassment affects America's standing around the globe. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Okay, so the hot topic for President Obama's summit today with the Chinese president was supposed to be hacking, as in Obama confronting Xi Jinping over China's efforts to hack into American computers. Now there's another hot cybersecurity topic to add to the agenda. Revelations this week about the U.S. government's ongoing surveillance of foreign email and electronic content. Oh, and don't forget yesterday's news that the National Security Agency has been collecting the phone records of millions of Americans. Early today, Obama issued a strong defense of his government's surveillance practices, which he said are needed to prevent terrorist attacks. I think it's important to recognize that uh, you can't have 100 percent security and also then have 100 percent privacy and zero inconvenience. We're going to have to make some choices uh, as a society. The president also said that a modest encroachment on privacy was worth the added security. These statements come just hours before Obama sat down to talk hacking with the Chinese. Makes for some awkward diplomacy at the very least. But New York Times correspondent James Risen doesn't think Chinese leaders or others around the globe are all that shocked by that. We've already seen stories over the last few years about the growth of offensive cyber um, operations by the United States against Iran and other countries. And so, you know, it's really raises questions about whether or not the Chinese will respond to American criticism, given the fact that they know that the United States is involved in many pretty similar activities. And so the question for the United States is, can we distinguish what the Chinese cyber espionage and its focus on commercial gain by stealing American corporate secrets, that somehow that's more unethical or more morally more questionable than our targeting of foreigners for other purposes. Now, that could be a really tough circle to square. Is this going to be like a really awkward moment for Obama on cybersecurity? I'm sure that they'll try and ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's supposed to be at the top of the agenda. They'll just uh, say, all right, let's move on to number two. Right, right. I mean, you know, I, I kind of think that that's not really what the meetings are all about. Um, James, just in light of these uh, reports on uh, spying in the U.S., what weight does the U.S. have to stop cyber espionage coming out of China or anywhere when now the U.S. has been shown to be spying themselves? Well, I mean, the Chinese know that. They know that we spy. They know that you know the, the NSA is more powerful than anything they have. 
Uh, the NSA is the best at this in the world. And so that's not a particularly big secret uh, among other intelligence services. So this is not news to really anybody, I'm sure, in the Chinese government or in the Russian government or the Iranian government. It's just a matter of becoming public is a little more embarrassing. Um, so I don't really think it'll affect any behavior on anybody's side. So a lot of Americans saying today, we were the last ones to find out. Yeah, that's usually the thing about leaks is that when the government complains about leaks, really what they don't like is it becomes too public and too embarrassing. And what they don't like to admit is everybody really kind of already knew. James Risen with The New York Times. Thank you so much. Sure. So embarrassing leaks for Obama going into today's meeting with his Chinese counterpart. But the larger question really is, how will this information about the U.S. government's surveillance of Internet and phone data affect America's role around the globe? Joseph Nye is a former assistant secretary of defense and was also chair of the National Intelligence Council under President Clinton. He's now a distinguished service professor at Harvard's Kennedy School. Uh, Professor Nye, we just spoke with The New York Times' James Risen, and he thinks that the Chinese already suspected that the U.S. government was up to these things, that a lot of the world already knew this was happening here. So in diplomatic circles, what does this mean for ambassadors and diplomats? Does this suddenly throw a curveball at every embassy in the world that has to explain the U.S. to their counterparts? No, I don't think so. I think it's going to be more an issue in domestic politics about concern about uh, civil liberties uh, versus security and anti-terrorism. I suspect other countries not only thought we were doing it, but uh, if you take China specifically, the ways in which they surveil their people are much, much tougher than what we do. But now that the news is public, don't you think, I mean, imagine what the Russians or the Iranians might make of this now. The Russians and the Iranians are also doing things which are much stricter than what we're doing. People sometimes say about prices and markets, the market has already discounted that. Uh And I think that uh, you'll find that these other countries have more or less already discounted that. But can the U.S. continue to be the self-proclaimed leader on cyber Internet press freedom and also seem to be spying on ourselves? Won't, Won't other countries make hay out of that? There's a big difference between what was disclosed in the papers this morning about PRISM, which is basically a traffic mapping as opposed to having a firewall or going inside internet messages or censoring internet messages, which is what a country like China or Iran does. So they're really not comparable in that sense. What was your own reaction to the news of cyber spying in the U.S.? I wasn't really surprised. I thought that internet mapping, in other words, finding out what calls are made, I think there's been a lot of talk about that in people who follow uh, cyber circles. Again, there's a difference between the mapping the flow of traffic and what's called deep packet inspection, which means going inside the packets on the Internet and looking at the content of the messages. Right, but doesn't uh, that bother you that it might be a slippery slope? Well, I think there is a question of a slippery slope, and I noticed that President Obama made a point of saying when he was asked about it, that he would welcome a discussion of the trade-offs between liberty and security. I think, from my point of view, the most important thing is that it's not done by the executive branch without a judicial procedure and without notifying the Congress. If you believe in checks and balances, as I do, uh, that is a crucial point, which is that this was done with a court approval and with notification of the Congress.
And just with Chinese President Xi Jinping and uh, President Obama meeting, uh, specifically, how do you think it's going to affect that meeting with uh, presumably cyber espionage was at the top of the agenda? Yes, but the points that they're going to deal with, which I think are going to be in the forefront, are the questions about theft of intellectual property. Our concern about uh, the Chinese has been going into American accounts, not just mapping the patterns of traffic uh, as we've been doing, but going in and actually extracting blueprints and designs and confidential insider information. The Chinese, on their hand, are concerned about our intruding into their systems for finding ways not to steal intellectual property, but uh, if you want to confound them if we were ever to get into a military conflict. So I think that's going to be the area that the two presidents will focus on. I've got to say, Joseph Nye, your sense that uh, this was already happening and it's not a big surprise, and uh, it sounds like it's shared by a lot of people around the world in official circles. There's kind of a a wink-wink, nudge-nudge quality to it that that I can't help but imagine would make a lot of average citizens just feel really out of the loop and disenfranchised. This starts, remember, after 9-11 in the Bush administration. The first concern was what was called warrantless wiretaps. And then Congress gets involved. Congress then passes legislation to make sure that the judicial branch is brought in. And there is a problem of trade-offs between security and liberty, which we may not have got just right, but which we're going to have to have a discussion of. And perhaps it's a good thing that it gets out further into the public domain so those trade-offs are better discussed and understood. Joseph Nye, former Assistant Secretary of Defense, now at Harvard's Kennedy School. Thanks very much. Thank you. By the way, today's meeting between the U.S. and Chinese heads of state is all about informality. No white ties, no state dinner, no red carpet. The venue is the Sunnylands Ranch in California, a sprawling mid-century modern retreat. No one would confuse it for the White House. So what does this short sleeves over suit jackets conference say about relations with China and the new president, Xi Jinping? David Wartime is a co-founder of the online magazine Tea Leaf Nation and an associate fellow at the Truman National Security Project. David, what's the point of doing the state visit differently, do you think? I think the fact that this is a more informal meeting signifies that this is an effort for the two leaders to get to know each other personally as much as that can happen between two of the busiest men in the world. Is it partly to put this new Chinese president Xi Jinping at ease in a place that isn't Washington? I suppose that's correct. I think you could argue it probably puts both men at relative ease. This is a rather unusual format. There are six hours of scheduled talks. You know, this will extend over two days, which is a very long time, again, for two people with such busy schedules. One thing that it potentially signifies also is that Xi Jinping has some degree of confidence in the power that he holds at home. And so he's able to go uh, have a meeting with the American president in a way that is stripped of some of the bombast and diplomatic niceties that you might see from a leader with a bit less confidence internally in his power. So, David, you follow social media quite a bit in in China. Meetings between U.S. and Chinese leaders always seem framed by some consequential issue. This time it's cybersecurity. What are people saying about that? You know, it's interesting. When I looked up today on Weibo, China's major social media platform, a lot of the chatter was quite thin. There was a editor of a conservative paper called The Global Times who was saying he's cheering them both on and hoping for a breakthrough. It's being overshadowed in both countries by news at home. On the Chinese side, there's a great deal of discussion about the Gaokao or the college entrance exam, Mm. which is going to be shaping the fates of about 9 million students on Friday and Saturday. 
And in a way, this might be good. You know, this meeting is less fraught with expectations for particularized deliverables. And that may be good to the extent that the meeting's true function is to provide, again, the beginnings of a, of a personal relationship or a personal understanding between these two men. The ability for both men to see how the other views and analyzes the U.S.-China relationship, I think, provides an important bulwark against potentially catastrophic misunderstanding. So this conference is out west at a ranch. Uh, do you think we'll see a Xi Jinping donning a cowboy hat like Deng Xiaoping did? You never know. Uh, <laughs> Deng Xiaoping's visit to the United States was, I think, a real pleasant surprise at the time. He was much more outgoing and charismatic than I think people expected. And that was, of course, a fundamentally important meeting and that it helped provide justification for uh, the economic reforms, which Deng then instituted within China. So it's possible, of course, that he will choose to don a cowboy hat. We do know that he spent some time in the United States when he was younger. David Wertheim, co-founder and co-editor of Tea Leaf Nation. Thanks very much for your time, David. Thanks so much for your time, Mark. I appreciate it. Hey, you headed to the mountains or the beach this summer? Worried that you'll not be able to follow the world? Well, wherever your vacation takes you this year, you can now flip through the world stories on the popular Flipboard app. Download Flipboard for your iPad, iPhone, or Android device and listen to and see all of the world's reporting right there in your hand. That's at flipboard.com slash the world. Still to come on the world, continuing to make Syrah and Sauvignon Blanc in a country that's at war on Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Twenty years ago, a ship plowed into a sandbar off Queens, New York, and human cargo spilled out. Nearly 300 men from southeast China started scrambling for shore. The ship was the Golden Venture, and the men had paid smugglers to get them to the U.S. Ten of them died desperately trying to make it to land. The rest were ultimately arrested and detained. That was arguably the beginning of the U.S. practice of imprisoning illegal immigrants. Patrick Radden Keefe wrote a post in this week's New Yorker about the men aboard the Golden Venture. I asked him to tell me the story of one of the passengers. There was a guy whose name uh, was Sean Chen. This is what he goes by now, who was a boy, really, when he left. He was about 18 years old. He had had some trouble with the local authorities. He'd attended some democracy protests. And one day he basically, a change of clothes and a backpack, he didn't have any ID. His family had paid smugglers to get him out of the country. So he went overland through Burma to Thailand and got onto one ship. That ship took him as far as Mombasa, Kenya, where it broke down and he was stranded for six months in Kenya waiting for another ship to pick him up. The other ship that came eventually was the Golden Venture. Mm. He was then in the hold of the Golden Venture on this really brutal voyage in which they hit huge storms. Um, there was a, a near mutiny at one point. They were running out of food. People were sick. And ultimately, the ship ran aground in New York. He jumped off, managed to swim to shore. And at that point, he felt like, I've done it. I came all this way. He'd been gone for uh, over a year at that point from China, and he thought, I've made it to New York. And it was at that point that he was arrested and sent off to immigration detention in, in York, Pennsylvania. And he spent the better part of the next four years there in prison. 
He was released eventually in 1997. Uh, President Bill Clinton paroled out the remaining Golden Venture passengers who were there, but he didn't get a, a green card. And what's happened since is that he moved to Philadelphia. He works in the restaurant business. He currently works in a Japanese restaurant. He's always uh, had a number of jobs. And um, it's funny, you know, Sean has become a very American guy. He's about my age. We got to know each other pretty well. He married a woman he met here. They've had two kids here. Um, and, you know, it's it's funny. When his first son was born, he told me it took a few days before he even thought to come up with a Chinese name for his son. Mm. He's so strongly identified with America. And yet, you know, he, he's not really legally entitled to be here in the long term. And he doesn't feel as though there's anything to go back to in China. He has no family there anymore. There's no reason why he would go back. So he's in a kind of limbo. Keith told me some of the men from the Golden Venture are assembling in York, Pennsylvania this weekend, where they spent so many years in detention. He doesn't know whether Sean Chen is going this time around. There was a reunion a few years ago, actually, and a bunch of people came from all over the country. They it, Another kind of wonderful aspect of this story is that the... Um, the population in York actually rallied around these guys in the prison when they realized that these guys had gone to such great lengths to leave China and they were now locked up. A lot of people in York started volunteering uh, and trying to help them with their legal cases. And so there's a whole community of people in York, Pennsylvania, who really came together and they've stayed in touch with them. And so it's, uh, you know, in some ways a profoundly sad story because of the struggles that these guys have gone through and the extent to which they really haven't been able to find legal acceptance in their new home, but in other ways, an encouraging one, I think, because of the ways in which it brought people together in this community. Just looking back, it's incredible the lengths these people took to get out of China. Yeah, it's it's pretty astonishing. But interestingly enough, you know, I had a conversation with Sean Chen where I was actually saying to him, look at China now. Look how prosperous it is. I had gone back, I had gone to Fujian province, which is now really booming. Um, and people there told me, oh, I wouldn't leave now. Why would I want to go to the United States and work in a restaurant when I could stay here and open a factory? And I said to him, do you ever regret uh, risking your life and going through the, just this incredible ordeal in order to come to America, knowing now what you didn't know then? And he says, you know, even knowing what I know now, if you gave me the opportunity again, I, I would do it all over again. Patrick Radden Keefe, author of the book The Snakehead, an epic tale of the Chinatown underworld and the American dream. He's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Hollywood icon Esther Williams died yesterday at the age of 91. The movie star was a former Los Angeles Athletic Club champion swimmer. She's remembered for her impressive aquatic feats in major MGM extravaganzas of the 1940s and 50s. The world's Adeline Sear has this appreciation. Esther Williams' most famous films were marvels of technical or escapism, known as aqua-musicals. They featured sophisticated, synchronized swimming scenes, some may say grand or over-the-top. Her film's evocative titles include Bathing Beauty, Million Dollar Mermaid, her favorite, Neptune's Daughter. I don't know whether to kiss you or kill you. Kiss me. And Jupiter's Darling. Gorgeous Esther Williams in the most spectacular underwater extravaganza ever filmed. The girl with the heavenly body who can even make a statue come to life. Williams acted entire scenes underwater, always dove in with properly extended toes, always rose from the water with a perfect smile. 
Williams was a quintessential California girl, but her movies popularized top-notch synchronized swimming around the world, and her influence is still felt today. Adele Carlson was the manager of Britain's synchronized swim team for the Beijing and London Olympics. She says she pretty much grew up in the shadow of Esther Williams's cinematic achievements. My dad really liked Esther Williams. I think that's why I became a synchronized swimmer. Um, he actually saw her perform in a water show in Wembley, um, which she went to do after she retired from doing films. And um, he liked all the MGM musicals, and so I grew up watching them. In competition, Carlson's synchronized swimmers don't take the kinds of risks that Williams embraced in her career. Williams performed arduous acrobatic tricks, diving from a towering platform wearing a golden crown, for example, or jumping from a swinging trapeze high above water, always gracefully. And that, too, suggested Adele Carlson another career choice. She actually inspired me to set up a company called Acrobatics where we perform for events and we actually get lots of requests in to perform like Esther Williams in the 1950s glamorous style. Esther Williams passed away yesterday at the age of 91, but her shimmering glamour lives on. For the world, this is Adeline Sia. Hot, dry summers and mild, wet winters are your first clues for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for Syria's biggest Mediterranean port and its fifth largest city. It's located in northwestern Syria, not too far from the border with Turkey. The seaport is the centerpiece of a region known for its hot Mediterranean climate, and that's perfect for growing grapes and making wine. The Greeks did it, the Romans did it, so did the Phoenicians, and it continues to this day. Now that a civil war is raging in Syria, you'd imagine running a vineyard would be impossible. Well, not quite. We're happy to be able to continue producing wine when things are not easy, let's say, uh, everywhere else in the, in the country. Thank God we're doing okay for the time being. We'll hear more from that Syrian vintner and reveal the name of that port city in northwest Syria later in the program. This is PRI, Public Radio International. Marco Werman. Coming up, ditching the dollar bill. Some in Congress want to do it. Many Americans don't. But a lot of other countries swapped small bills for coins long ago. Switzerland has the five franc. Sweden has the 10 krona. In Japan, the lowest coin is the 500 yen, which is the equivalent of over $6 in the United States. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. When we say that the war in Syria could be spreading in the region... This is what we mean. Eleven rockets flew into neighboring Lebanon on Wednesday night. Lebanese authorities say the rockets hit one of the strongholds of the militant group Hezbollah. It wasn't long ago that Hezbollah was denying having fighters in Syria. Now it's boasting about its presence there and giving reporters like Ben Gilbert special tours. 
Hezbollah has lost a lot of men in Syria. It's obvious from the posters. Along the highway that leads through the group's Bekaa Valley stronghold, it's hard to miss the dozens of martyr pictures tacked to light poles and strung over the road. Most display the faces of young men in military uniform. Hezbollah's men fought and died in the battle for the Syrian town of Qasr, not far from the Lebanese border. And Hezbollah was pretty proud of their efforts. Earlier this week, Hezbollah took me up to the border. Two men, who refused to give their names, brought me to the roof of a building where we had a clear view of the surrounding countryside. One of the men pointed to the north. Behind the trees you see some buildings. That's where Asir is. Then he said we were actually in Syria. The guys here, one of them who's in uh, camouflage uniform, clearly a member of Hezbollah's military wing with a radio, says this is not a main uh, crossing for Hezbollah's resupply or medical evacuations, but there are cars crossing this border constantly. Uh, vans with their windows blacked out and trucks with, uh, with tarpaulins over the back so you can't see what's inside. And they're going right through a Syrian army checkpoint that's about a half mile down the road with its flag flying. We can see it from here. Clearly, there's some supplies going back and forth to help Hezbollah in their fight in Syria. The man with the walkie-talkie says Hezbollah is fighting in Syria, in part to protect the Lebanese who live along the border. There are 31 villages inside Syrian lands that are considered Lebanese in their inhabitants. And even beyond Qusair, which is 13 kilometers inside Syrian lands, you'll find even beyond that distance villages that are also inhabited by Lebanese. Hezbollah also justifies helping the Syrian army conquer Qusair by saying that the fall of Bashar al-Assad's government in Syria poses an existential threat to the group. We received a background briefing about Hezbollah's actions at the party's office in the town of Hermel in northeastern Lebanon. A large photo of Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah graced one wall, and Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, another. A Hezbollah supporter here told us that Hezbollah is fighting terrorists in Syria who threaten Hezbollah's supply routes. He said Hezbollah needs those supply routes to fulfill its first duty, which is to fight Israel and free Palestine. And while Hezbollah says its mission is to protect Lebanese land and citizens, the group's involvement has also made people here victims. Last week, 20-year-old Lulu Awad was killed by a Syrian opposition rocket as she stood on her neighbor's roof. Lulu's father, Abdullah Mohammed Awad, receives guests paying condolences in the building where Lulu was killed. A relative serves black coffee to mourners. As Awad says, he asked Hezbollah to send him to Syria to fight, although he says he's not a member of the group. He says the Syrian opposition is filled with infidels and terrorists. Before my daughter's martyrdom, Awad says, I didn't think much about the opposition groups in Syria. But now that she's been murdered, I'm 100% against these groups, and I want to go to the front line and kill these terrorists. Awad says the rocket came from the direction of Arsal, a Sunni village known for its support of the Syrian opposition about 20 miles away. He says he feels hatred toward the people there and accuses them of aiding the terrorists who killed his daughter. Here in Arsal, a Syrian man who calls himself Abu Yaro is angry as well. He's one of thousands of refugees in this town, living in miserable conditions. Before the war, he exported fruit and lived in a nice home in the Syrian village of Ain Samak, near Qasr. 
The 59-year-old condemned Hezbollah's involvement in Syria's war and, when referring to the group, whose name means Party of God, called them Hezbollah Shaitan, or Party of Satan. During the 2006 war between Hezbollah and Israel, we sheltered the refugees from Hermel and the Beka in our homes, he says. They didn't pay for anything. Now they have returned our hospitality by killing us and betraying us. It's a sectarian war, he says. Hezbollah has turned this into a sectarian war. That night, Hezbollah and the Syrian army mounted their final push into the town of Qasr. By the next morning, Qasr had fallen. In Hezbollah neighborhoods in Beirut and the Baqa, residents fired guns and fireworks into the air and handed out sweets. Meanwhile, the Syrian opposition vowed revenge, with the head of the Free Syrian Army saying that it was legitimate to attack Hezbollah targets on Lebanese land. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert in Beirut. The war in Syria has been devastating in many ways. Tens of thousands killed, innumerable families in flight and businesses destroyed. But life has to go on. That's the sense you get speaking with Sandro Sadeh. He owns the Barjulus Vineyard on the outskirts of Latakia, a city in northwest Syria. Latakia, by the way, is the answer to our geo-quiz today. We caught up with Sandro while he was at a wine-tasting event in Beirut. I asked him about the challenge of producing wine when there's a war going on. Well, it's about day-to-day logistics and day-to-day managing the teams. The region where we are, which is above the Latakia city, is um, okay for the time being. But obviously, we have to manage the human uh, component. Therefore, the people, whether they're um, okay and uh, working in good conditions. We do our best, but definitely it's a day-to-day thing. How close is the fighting to you? Well, the fighting is, I don't think it's close in the Latakia region. You know, uh, Latakia region is, uh, until now, uh, a bit far from all these security issues. Thank God we're doing okay for the time being. Paint us a picture of your vineyard and winery. What kind of grapes do you grow? So, you know, the, the city of Latakia is on the sea. It is the northwest of Syria. 900 meters altitude, this is where we have the Domaine de Bargilus. And we specifically uh, chose that location because at that altitude we have the fresh climate and we're able to have a difference of temperatures between day and night, allowing the grapes to have to be at the right temperatures so that the maturity levels uh, are obtained. Do you make both red and white varietals? Exactly. So we do uh, one red and one white. The white is a Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc blend. The red is a Syrah, mostly, but also Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot blend. Syrah is originally from that part of the world, right? Well, we like to believe this, but nobody knows exactly whether it's from uh, Armenia or... uh, or other regions, but uh, I think it's uh, it has been grown for many, many hundreds or if not thousands of years in that region. It is right. Can you define Syrian terroir? What does it provide in terms of taste sure. that makes it unique? Well, I think that the area where we have Bargilus, uh, there's a lot of limestone and silex in the soil, and this is why we get very mineral wines, and strong, powerful, but mineral 
and a lot of freshness in the wines. So uh, I think that's very important. So I'm curious, would you say that Chateau Bargelus remains successful in spite of the war in Syria? I would say that we're happy to be able to continue producing wine when things are not, are not easy, let's say, uh, everywhere else in the, in the country. It is a kind of a challenge. I think that continuing to do that is difficult. And most importantly, I think that we're also bring, uh, keeping the, the people that work for Bargelius, keeping their jobs, that's really important for us. What is the biggest challenge you found so far, Sandro? The biggest challenge? Keeping the people working for Bargelius uh, convinced that they, there is a future for them in that country and not leaving for other opportunities outside Syria. I think this is particularly important. I guess that's a big question so many Syrians are facing. Do they stay or do they go? Exactly, and we're seeing everyday people that are leaving their homes, their, their work, their, the, everything they've done so far. And hopefully we, this will stop and things will get better on all sides. Sandro Sade, co-owner, along with his brother Karim of Bargilus in Syria, has been telling us about his wine and the challenges of making it during wartime. Sandro, thanks very much. Thank you very much. If you're thirsty for a view of the Bargilus vineyard, we've got photos at theworld.org. Now, Syria's neighbor just to the north, Turkey, has been gripped with riots and protests for a week and a half now. The protests began over what, at first glance, looks like a routine city planning issue, a proposal to bulldoze a park and build a mall. But it's blown up into a confrontation with the conservative government of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the prime minister. So we've been trying to dig into the roots of the issue. Sibel Bozdoğan is in Istanbul. She's a Turkish-American architectural historian who teaches at Harvard and at Bilgi University in Istanbul. So Taksim Square is the heart of this protest movement, Sibel. What's happening there today? Well, today it is like a carnival atmosphere. The protesters are, uh, you know, they are singing. They are, uh, all sorts of uh, groups are there. It's really diverse. And I'm really proud of these young people. What, why, why are you proud of them? Well, because they have managed to act on what many of us were concerned about regarding the urban issues, uh, specifically about the park. But I think the protests are actually larger than just the park. I think it is a protest in general about the larger neoliberal urban agenda of this government. I mean, we have been observing how uh, Istanbul is filled now with residential towers and malls and erosion of public space in particular. And there has been a lot of displacements, evictions, uh, gentrification of historic neighborhoods, etc. So all of these accumulated and and exploded. As you say, I mean, this controversy started uh, mm-hmm. through this attempt to demolish an old park and monument in Taksim Square, this Gezi Park. Um, right. So if they're at the tip of the iceberg, what do they symbolize? Well, of course, Taksim Square is the symbol of the Republican agenda of creating a modern European-style public square. I mean, the park was, you probably by now all know that it was built in the late 1930s, early 1940s by the French urban planner Henri Prost, uh, is has become part of the collective memory of Republican modernization. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, there's got to be in these architectural and urban planning issues some metaphor for 
the social splits, the political splits in Turkish society today. Absolutely. I mean, this is yet another instance of how politically charged our profession is, architecture and, and urban planning. And in fact, this will probably be talked about in our classes, because uh, nowadays there's all this movement about citizens' right to the city, which is, again, very relevant here, because what these young people are protesting in the park are uh, not being able to be heard by this government. It's as simple as that. It it almost sounds like Erdogan wants to historically revise that Republican era via architecture. Yes, it's very overt agenda of returning the city, if you like, to its Ottoman identity, which, of course, is problematic because it denies the incredible complexity, incredible cultural complexity and layers of the city. Yes, of course, this this has been the Ottoman capital, but it has been also a very cosmopolitan city. So again, the uh, young people in the park are uh, quite admirable in their uh, sort of... uh, Uh, desire to maintain that kind of cosmopolitan atmosphere. Architecture and politics, a buzz in Istanbul. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Sibel Bozdoğan, Turkish-American architectural historian, speaking with us from Istanbul. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. And now a citizen awareness campaign that many town halls should consider. You listening any city with canines? I'm talking dog do. The world's Jerry Haddon explains from Spain where the rain falls mainly in the plain but doesn't wash some things off the sidewalks. Sidewalks covered with dog dew. Who hasn't seen it or stepped in it? Officials all over the world combat this problem with fines, with signs. But in tiny Brunete, a village outside Madrid, nothing's worked. Not even this campaign. This is a promo video made by town officials. It involved a fake pile of dog droppings on wheels, controlled remotely. When officials saw a dog owner not clean up after their dog, they'd crash the poo-mobile into the perpetrator's foot. A little placard sticking out of it read, Don't abandon me. People laughed, but that's about it. Then someone came up with a more, let's say, in-your-face approach. Hola, ¿qué tal? A team of 20 hired watchers now scour the streets for perpetrators. They chat them up, all friendly. They ask a single, casual question. What's your dog's name? Then, back at headquarters, they cross-reference Fido or Sparky against the village's database of pets. All the dogs are actually registered. And voila, in two seconds, they've got the owner's name too and where they live. Next, they turn to old-fashioned direct marketing. They take the offending poo, which they collected after the friendly encounter on the street, pack it up in a little white box. It almost looks like Chinese takeout. On the side it says, lost item. Then they pay a home visit. I didn't lose anything, people usually say, perplexed. Just sign, says the delivery guy, holding out a pen and a release form, everything on the up and up. In the town's video, you don't see people's reactions when they open the boxes, but officials say the amount of waste on the streets of Brunete has dropped 70% since the home deliveries began. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Woof. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A bipartisan group of senators is at it again. They want to ditch the dollar bill. They say it's time we caught up with the rest of the globe. The World's Jason Margolis has our story. 
If you've spent any time traveling abroad recently, you've likely picked up a lot of spare change. The $2 euro, the two-pound coins in England, Switzerland has the five franc. Sweden That's Aaron Klein, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary coin, with the U.S. Treasury. In Japan, the lowest coin is the 500 yen, which is the equivalent of over $6 in the United States. In the U.S., the quarter is the largest denomination in wide circulation. Klein wants the U.S. to get in line with the rest of the world. He's part of a bipartisan group called the Dollar Coin Alliance. They argue while coins cost more to produce, they last more than 30 years. American dollar bills fall apart in about five years. According to the Government Accountability Office, it could save $4.4 billion over 30 years. Other countries, including Canada, that have gone through this experience have actually saved far more than the official government estimates, so savings could be even higher. Seems like a no-brainer, but not so fast. First, it should be said, the bipartisan bill introduced yesterday is authored by senators from mining states like Arizona and Wyoming. Their states stand to benefit from the production of more copper coins. Doug Crane represents the paper side of it. He's with Crane & Company in western Massachusetts. His family has been supplying the paper for our money since the time of Paul Revere. He says, yes, the government will save money by switching to coins. But it's based on large costs that are borne by the American public. Now, stick with me here for a moment. There's an economics concept called seniorage. That's the revenue the government earns by issuing money. Basically, every time the government issues a $1 bill or coin, it invests the proceeds and earns interest. The more hard currency out there, the more interest the government is earning. Now, if we ditch our dollar bills, they need to be replaced by a lot of extra coins. Because coins sit on bureau tops and get lost in couch cushions and car seats, it takes more coins to do the same job in circulation as a banknote. And this is how the government could save $4 billion, with all that extra hard currency out there. And if you and I are then stashing all those new coins in our sock drawers, we're not earning interest at the bank. It's essentially a tax. But all of this assumes that we'll treat dollar coins the same way as nickels and dimes. How do our neighbors to the north do it? Canada hasn't printed a dollar bill since the late 1980s. Hello. I called John Barber in Toronto. He's a former columnist with The Globe and Mail. I asked him if he just throws his coins in a jar. Well, I do. There's two jars, though. <laughs> and uh, one has the loonies and the toonies, and the other has the nickels and the dimes. Loonies and toonies is Canada speak for one and two dollar coins. Barber says it's nice to reach into the jar and quickly fish out 20 bucks. The only downside of the dollar coin or the $2 coin is that coins tend to slip out of your pocket. I never gave my children an allowance because they were always, you know, digging 5 and $10 out of the cushions rather than, you know, 50 cents or so. Yet another factor for Congress to consider as they debate coin versus bill. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Clearly, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Well, our next story is about both trash and treasure, buried treasure. A Canadian company has been given the rights to excavate an area in the New Mexico desert. They aren't digging for gold or diamonds or sweet crude. They plan to dig up a landfill in search of some long-discarded video game cartridges. The world's Andrea Crossan has that story. Some call it an urban legend. Others swear that there's treasure to be found in Alamogordo, New Mexico. That's where the video game company Atari is believed to have dumped over 3 million video game cartridges into a landfill. 
First, we need to go back to 1982 when it all started. So you remember this, right? E.T. Steven Spielberg's film E.T., The Extraterrestrial, was a huge box office hit in 1982. Such a big hit that Spielberg made a deal with the video game company Atari to make this. That's the E.T. video game. Atari scrambled to get the game to market while the film was still in theaters. But in their rush to produce it, they created what has been dubbed the worst video game ever made. It was one of the biggest commercial failures in video gaming history. Now a Canadian entertainment company wants to dig up the landfill to look for the cartridges and to film their quest. Mike Burns is the CEO of Fuel Industries. I've been a fanboy of Atari. It's just something that's held on in the back of my mind as to, you know, why did they dump all these cartridges and where did they dump them and why did they do it in the, the shroud of the night? Fuel Industries has a six-month lease, and since Atari has never made public the location of the landfill, it's a risky venture. It could be one of those Geraldo moments where we opened the Al Capone safe and there's nothing in there. I told somebody else yesterday it could be shredded weed. They could have all been shredded and everything been destroyed before it was put in. We don't know what we're going to find. Um, hopefully we find something that's intact. Call it a calculated gamble. If the video game cartridges are in that cement-encased landfill in the desert, well, they will have solved the mystery, and they might even make some money. The old game cartridges sell on eBay for up to $30 a piece. Ian Bogost is a professor at Georgia Tech and a video game designer. He's played the E.T. video game, which he calls a lovely adaption of the film. But he doesn't think there's much money in it, since he says the cartridges aren't really collectibles for most people. But he says there's still value in searching for those old video games. It's not so much an investigation of whether or not this dump really took place, but a kind of deliberate exploration of the legend and a you know kind of willing pursuit of a buried treasure that's A, neither a treasure, and B, that might not even be there. But Mike Burns is determined. Oh, when I was young, I had my Atari uh, 2600, and it was a, a game I definitely had. I actually still have a copy of it. I started collecting Atari. When I hit uh, my mid-20s, I started uh, recollecting all my Atari games. And uh, it is, it's a horrible game. For The World, I'm Andrea Crossan. And finally, have you tested your soccer skills with the video game FIFA 13 from EA Sports? If you have, then you may have heard this song. It's called Panda, and it's by the Chilean band Astro. Astro's all about fun, gaming, skateboarding, and when they're in L.A. hanging out at Venice Beach, kids today, in other words, my kind of band. We'll leave you then with Astro's contribution to FIFA 13. Certainly hope for Astro's sake the game doesn't end up in some landfill in the desert. The world's theme music, which doesn't appear in any video games, not yet anyway, was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.